Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Okay, everybody, welcome back. This is a super special COVID edition. We're not going to number it right now. Anyway. I, have, I have the wrong glasses on. <laughs> Surprise, he has 400 pairs of glasses and three pairs of contacts, and we switch them 900 times a day. So if I misread something. So yes, today we have Amanda Nasca, Dr. Amanda Nasca. She was, uh, of course, a favorite on the COVID Echo, so... But but more importantly, like she went to medical school with me. Yeah, that's important. That is so important. So she's smarter than you. We'll be telling yeah. stories about Dr. Heather Bell and the escapades <laughs> later. So, although before you came here, Kurt was like, "Does she do fun things?" <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if people describe me as fun. Ah, well, we'll work on it. You'll have to ask people who know me. Yeah. <laughs> Heather, you can decide. So she, she's our favorite infectious disease doctor here in Duluth, and uh, she's been on our Echo. And we're going to have her maybe just tell her first, tell us first a little bit about herself, like where she went to medical school and where her training was and what it was about. Yeah, We're assuming so. you tr- you took training. Okay. Yeah, I did do a tiny bit of training. Not like so. that one movie, Catch Me If You Can, you <laughs> yeah, know, where yeah. you just pretended to be a doctor. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I try not to do that. I'm not very good at acting. Um, <laughs> I went to undergrad at St. Scholastica here in Duluth, and then I went to medical school at the University of Minnesota Duluth for the first two years. Right, and where we were pals. We, oh, yeah. yeah. And then... Um, I was there when Dr. Bolger was still middle-aged. I love Dr. Bolger. <laughs> Who doesn't? He's so right? lovable. I love him. Such an amazing man. Anyways, and uh, so finished those two years and then transferred to the Twin Cities, added on an, a year to do um, a public health degree in addition to my M- MD. So mm-hmm. graduated late, late bloomer. Um, and yeah. then ended up moving to... Um, Providence, Rhode Island, to do a fellowship training program uh, through Lifespan Hospitals in Brown University, and then stayed there for uh, post-fellowship. I was there for four years. Wow. Almost Jeez. four years. She's way yeah. smarter than we are. She's no. smarter than we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's at least smarter than you. Yeah. <laughs> I the mean, I've been around a while. thing. Yeah. So, so you know... We're gonna Wait, have why some... did you move back to Duluth? Just to get closer there to home? There you go. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it was to get closer to home. I Actually, my dad got sick and oh. died of pancreatic cancer. Ouch. Mm. So I don't mean to be a downer. You can, might want to push one of those buttons here. <laughs> no. But uh, no, it was to be closer to family. And, uh, it, and I'm so glad I did because then COVID happened. And plane flights were very difficult mm. to find, I, you know. Right. So it's, it's good to be home. Well, good. So, you know, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about just general COVID topics because on the on our echo you do some real specific stuff but uh, that Kurt can't understand yeah so we're gonna just (laughs) throw a few questions at you uh, and try and stump you no we're not gonna try and stump you (laughs) so so I I think we'll start with you know you know we've had SARS we've had MERS we've had all these things did you ever think in your entire career you'd be involved in a pandemic I mean you're an infectious disease doctor but did you go you know what it's gonna hit no, I've no. got to be honest with you. I didn't. I'd, I'd been warned by Mike Osterholm, Dr. Osterholm. Oh, wow. He, he was one of my professors. And <laughs> it was really, 
Um, Did you say, Mike, you're out of your mind? (laughs) I never said that directly to him. (laughs) But uh, he turns out to be very... um, He's a very smart man and yeah, I think predicted so this and has mm-hmm. predicted this for a while and, uh, you know, was telling us that in 2008 and nine. Wow. Um, but um, I never thought that it would get to this degree. Of mm. Usually if you some, come up with something crazy, you know, if you something come up with something crazy like that, like what Copernicus thought the world was round, they hung him. Hanged. Uh, they, they hanged he was him. hanged. I'm sorry. So Osterholm is predicting this, and everybody's thinking he's crazy, but he was right. I I mean, I think the vast majority of us didn't want to believe it was going to happen, knew it could. But, you know, temper our enthusiasm, see see where our anxieties lead, and hopefully not down this road, which is, yeah, yeah, it's a crazy ride. Do you feel extra pressure then because you are an infectious disease doctor? For what? Are you taking it personal? Like, you you need to know everything about something that's, you know, (laughs) six months old. We were, it was evolving, right? So it's a brand new virus that, that, you know, it's, it evolved. And I, I, I I don't know. I've removed myself from that responsibility. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't sweat that. I'm going to deviate from your list here, Kurt, just because. Something that always... It won't be as good, but go ahead. No, because, you know, every time you hear something about the news or you hear whatever and, you know, people tend to be, well, how come that wasn't a symptom when Wuhan had this or when China had it? I'm like, those poor people, this was not a disease and they were scrambling to, like, try to figure it out. And so they focused on the big things. Like, how do you see it with, you know, now we're in the U.S. and we're not China, we're not Italy, and we're not the coast. Is there a point here? There is a point, but... How is it being in your position to see it develop and try to like stay with it or ahead of it? Or how do you talk to people about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel a responsibility um, to keep up on the literature, to read what our, my colleagues are seeing and publishing and to be uh, involved in the various um, dialogues and platforms that we can to keep up on things. But I, I think... Coming into this, I expected to uh, certainly not to know everything and to be learning on the fly because we are all doing that, to be frank. Right. And, um, you know, who can prepare for a pandemic situation? But certainly the virus, uh, they've now shown that it morphs, that it, it has evolved into there are certain mutations that have um, changed things. And we've learned um, about the virus as we've gone, unfortunately, in real time. So like you said, you know, in China, that was a different, it might have even been a different strain of the virus. You know, that's certainly been described at least. And uh, the symptoms, you know, I think that just takes careful observation in science. And in a pandemic situation, most people are forgiven for not uh, picking up on that on the first week of the Well, and I think people are forgiven in scientific world. But I think the yeah. mass public who doesn't read all the journals like you do, exactly, they kind of get mad. Like, why didn't you know that? Yeah, what's yeah. the deal? No, that's true. That's true. And I think the reason underlying all of that is more human psychology, which is anxiety, right? right? Fear. Nobody really wants to believe something we don't know. Right? Boy, Heather, you must you- be struggling. <laughs> Wow, it's, it's a real challenge. He's though, just old say. and so forgets. <laughs> it's like what? There's a pandemic. I wake up every morning. What? I didn't read about Groundhog that. Day. <laughs> yeah. Well, then wasn't there an article last week that was published that there were like 84 different strains that genomes. they were able, geno- 
Wow. Yeah, and that's an unsettling thing. And then right? there's this dog and cat, you know, dog and cat manifestations. And then all of a sudden we're saying 40% asymptomatic, but oh, wait, we only had three symptoms when we were calling them symptoms when we started this. And now we have like 13, 20 different, you know, symptoms. So, you know, asymptomatic, what does asymptomatic even mean? Yeah, These we're mainstream gonna, media. We're going to get You might to as that. well just go to it. Oh, we're, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we could just go well, there. Totally two things. Two things. Number one, digress. first off, they don't think dogs actually spread it. Did you see that? But those oh, silly actually. cats, those cats are shedding virus. That's yeah. why I've always not liked cats. Yeah. But they said but, that they make the neutralizing antibodies correct. cats do. So mm. we're going to all have cat vaccines. We're going to be bloodletting our cats. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Dr. Rush. Anyway. Oh, well, we'll get to that other thing. So okay. what about uh, this pandemic do you think has been most surprising? Oh, I mean, we, we wanted to catch you off guard here. So no, we'll just, clearly you yeah. did. Um, Where's that button? Oh, no, not that one. This one. Oh, no, no, no. There, the crickets. The crickets. <laughs> um, what has been most surprising? I think what's been most surprising to me is our shortages. Yeah. In, I, in America. I'm really disappointed in, in that. And I don't mean to be negative Nancy here. No, but. go ahead. <laughs> I'm just really shocked at, uh, one, our uh, country's um, sort of response to resource-limited settings, which uh, every most, most other countries are more familiar with and have, um, are equipped to deal with. But I think we had a very delayed response to resource limitations and how crippled our healthcare system is when we run out of those resources. Yeah. You know, I think we are a land of plenty, and I would hope that we would be able to improvise and figure that kind of thing out. So I think that was the most surprising to me. I thought I had a lot more confidence, and I, it's not to say I was disappointed, but... <laughs> well, it's America. It's like, I we'll mean, make it happen. I thought, right. I thought when I was thinking about uh, China, oh, what if it did hit the coast, which it did, and what if it does spread throughout the country, which it is, um, we'll be okay. You know, that was my, I was confident, right? We'll be fine. We'll figure it out. We'll have masks. Everybody will be wearing masks and we'll just make it through this, you know? And I think that we, we are trying to make sure everybody has masks, but boy, has that been more complicated than I expected it to be. Should I be know? getting a mask for my dog and cat? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to digress. No, Go ahead. But you know, and I think what's interesting is the other day we had someone on the COVID echo talking about you know, the disparities in the different, um, like the, who's working in like the kitchens and who's working in the cleaning. And part of it is that they weren't given those PPE and therefore their numbers went up. And that's, that's super hard. Yeah. Right. It's It's just the same story again and again in our society. It's very sad and unfortunate. Right. But I think we're seeing that seeing that play out and it's it's terribly unfortunate i think we as a you know medical community have a responsibility to be advocates for those people and to respond to that right and i think i mean you see that within any health system i think you know big Mm -hmm. or small and oh that person doesn't need a mask because well that doesn't make sense so here you go like the donated mask so we can't take them but now we can and it's just frustrating yeah yeah and i i mean to you know just to um to give people the benefit of the doubt, we didn't know right. some of those mm-hmm. things right up front either. And a mask is better than no mask, but right. it's very challenging. And 
it, you know, it, when you're a healthcare administrator, for instance, I think it must be challenging to kind of face the very unique medical legal ramifications yeah. of the decisions you make and the very intelligent employees that are working underneath you right, yeah. or alongside you, depending upon how you do it. So That's I, a good I, point. I think it's a challenge for everybody. We, everybody's been kind of pushed to the uh, beyond the limits of their comfort zones. <laughs> yeah. I think it might actually impact how health systems go forward. You yeah, know, like, I hope so. Right. Oh my gosh, I hope so. Because you have administration, needed. yet when a pandemic happens, you think the doctors would be like, we're in charge. And now there's the struggle, like you just said. Yeah, and it's a necessary struggle because mm-hmm. nobody knows everything. I think there's a there's a benefit to the counterbalance, right? Mm-hmm. So, See, she said nobody knows everything, Kurt, so you need to get <laughs> off your horse. <laughs> Come back down. But I would say like <laughs> medical waste, for instance, and I've, I've tried to practice medicine in other countries. I'm not good at it at all because <laughs> it's a challenge without labs and yeah. resources, right? Sure. Like if we can't run lab work, you know, you really actually have to examine patients and be good at knowing what the epidemiology Whoa, of your you area touch is. A patient. It's super challenging, <laughs> right? It's a challenge. So yeah. I think the medical waste uh, in this country and the cost of medicine is has gotten out of control. She's just blowing my mind here with <laughs> thinking. Those are my, all of those are my opinions. They don't represent my employer or anybody else. They're just mine. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you put the disclaimer in there. We don't even care because we're not getting paid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who am I right now? <laughs> we don't. We don't make any money doing this. Matter of fact, we pay. Right. Yeah. Kurt actually has a box on a sheet of paper in his office with a dot saying Kurt stay in the box. Yeah. It's like <laughs> don't say anything to anybody, just stay in the box. It's safe. But anyway, let's Go save ahead. you. Um from your first patient with COVID until now, how has your treatment regimen changed? Oh wow, that's a great question. Um it's hard to write good questions. You guys are amazing. These were all me. So impressed. <laughs> Not all of them. Um, they were me. It's very hard like, to write good test questions and stuff. But anyway, um, the I they've changed dramatically. Actually, I always had hope for remdesivir, and I know anybody could say that. And you know, but I'm an I'm an ID doctor, <laughs> and it's an antiviral. So of course, I'm going to favor the antiviral. And I did have some hope for that. Um, and it turns out, I think that the to be honest, the data is pretty weak, and it's not uh, life-altering, in my opinion. Right. And um, the randomized controlled trial has flaws that I'm sure you've discussed. But uh, I w- we, we did not have access to remdesivir, so that influenced my treatment decisions. Because if I had, I would have given it to everybody. And now we're trying to give that to as many patients right, right up front as we could. I did kind of see... Um, just based on the early literature that the viral, before viral replication takes off, it would be important to interrupt that. Sure. And I think that makes sense just based on basic virology. Right. Right? Before it, the cows leave the barn, so to speak. <laughs> you wanna, Boy, she's you from keep, Staples, Minnesota. <laughs> exactly. You want to keep the cows in the barn. <laughs> so I'll stop with the metaphor there. But uh, the, the remdesivir can shut down viral replication so that you don't have this massive cytokine storm, right? So, um, But I think uh, I haven't changed a ton. We now use remdesivir a lot. We're using um, convalescent plasma. Um, I, I hope that the data comes forward to, to show that there is efficacy for that, but I don't know if it will. Mm-hmm. We're, we're part of the um, Mayo Clinic Expanded Access Program. And then the tocilizumab, I, I saw that coming right away because the, of the first few autopsies that were described. 
we don't have good data behind that yet either. Sure. So I would say uh, it hasn't changed that much. It's basically, uh, to be honest, it's been based on access. access. Sure. Yeah. So it's you know, I, I just think it's interesting she didn't mention the H drug. Yeah. I yeah. Know. Well, don't we were always that, honestly we've been skeptical about that at Essentia the entire. I'm not trying to advertise for anybody, but we've been wondering if about the risks versus benefits of that drug from day one. Yeah, we and don't say that drug we name. We just say we H. We say H. <laughs> because every week you review the literature and they still yeah. have more literature well, saying it's, it's like, not yeah, the greatest. It's killed more people. What's happening with, with that literature in particular is it's all weak. Yeah. Right? There's no good data. There's no good strong, except for the um, recent Minnesota-based um, study in the New England Journal, I believe, is where they published that. But the... Post exposure prophylaxis showing it has no benefit, but I the yeah. the H drug. So, <laughs> so just a quick throwback to one of our last uh, last podcasts. We did one on Dr. Yeah. Benjamin Rush. Okay. Are you familiar with Dr. Benjamin Rush? Mm-mm. He was the first doctor who felt that uh, alcohol was actually a disease, alcohol addiction. So, uh, but he was big into bloodletting and uh, giving huh. people mercury. You're not using any of that. No, okay. <laughs> just to be clear. To that okay, because he was big into bloodletting, so that's another podcast it's you can another, go back and listen to. Right, and it gets re- it yeah. actually gets released during the next plague Tuesday. Next Tuesday during the plague, he was big into that, and fifty wow. percent of his patients died. So. More people died with that. Turns so yeah. out anyway. you need those those little red blood cells. Yeah, so let's not do that. Yeah, let's don't do that. Okay, anyway, sure. so we way digress. <laughs> yeah, we. So um, when you see a consult. And you go in and see them. Are there things right away that you notice that are give you a bad feeling uh, as far as patient mortality? I mean, are you looking at certain things where you go, oh, these labs look badly? There are certain, certain <laughs> things that... No, the labs don't themselves look, so it's not an answer. Okay, that's okay. So do you look at any particular things and say, this is obviously going to be a bad outcome? With COVID, you mean? Yes. Or, mm-hmm. You know, to be honest, um, I rely on my hospitalist colleagues to kind of... Um, direct that a little bit more. We usually don't, we don't get involved in every COVID patient at the hospital because my very esteemed hospitalist colleagues and critical care colleagues um, manage those up front. And then we tend to get involved um, when they need, when they feel like they need our input or treatment guidance. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but I would say um, the things I think that can be predicted to be kind of, it's oftentimes labs mm-hmm. um, or just laying eyes on a patient. Sometimes you, sure. everybody who's in medicine knows what I'm talking about right now. You yeah. look at a patient and you just know right. that they look toxic, but, um, or tachypnic and sick. Um, but I, I think uh, labs can give a lot of guidance on that. Um, liver so enzyme you, elevation, okay. the ferritin, if, if somebody got that. The CRP, which our hospital is very fond of here. Um, the um, Whether or not they have kidney injury. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff is... And then sometimes their blood counts, but that combined with vitals gives you a really big picture look, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, I don't think I've ever consciously recognized that, and I don't be honest with you I, I'm not seeing the pe- patients as they hit the door so I but I can tell you that that kind of seeps into your psyche and you know it yeah, as you're sure. walking into a room to see it there's been a you know there was a obviously if you compare Europe uh, to the US weight is a big difference yeah and I guess I would ask you does weight seem to when you see the patients as weight tend to be a big thing yeah I have to say uh, from the literature I've been kind of looking at the the um, 
Obesity is a really big risk factor for severe outcomes. And it, I, my anecdotal experience managing patients, that definitely has bore, been borne out yeah. in terms of outcomes. So that is a very big risk factor. I, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Obese okay. patients make me nervous. Perfect. Yeah. Bottom line. <laughs> that's that's good i mean and it, it's just kind of that thing when you first open a chart as a consultant you know like mm-hmm. now that we're officially doing addiction stuff like you open the chart what are the first things you look at you know like when was last year in drug screen when was last this this and this sure. like, so i think like when you open a chart i usually look at vitals first vitals first and then presenting the reason they came in, the mm-hmm. uh, ER note. I read the ER note very carefully, what brought them in, how long they've had symptoms. Sure. Before seeking care, that's a big that's a big one for me because if patients were trying to ride it out at home for a week before they came in, um, going back to the cows leaving the barn, <laughs> there's a higher probability they already left the barn. Are these right? milk cows or are they beef? <laughs> oh, so, yeah, so, so if they've waited at home for a week or so and they've had symptoms and now they're coming in on day eight or seven, you know, day eight is yeah. kind of the bad turn. Are you still seeing a lot of positive PCR tests then? Um, I don't know if I've been paying that close of attention to my own personal experience with that. but um, Because if it looks like COVID, it's COVID. You're not actually caring what the PCR test To shows. some degree. Yeah. I was, certainly we've encouraged the hospitalist, if, if your gut instinct is, I don't know why this person is so sick, but everything else I've looked for is negative, and the COVID test is negative. But I think they have COVID. You leave them in COVID precautions. Sure. Right? These tests fail us. Their sensitivity, as everybody knows now, well, maybe not everybody, but most everybody knows is based on the time of test from symptom onset and how you collected the test. Sure. So there's a lot of weaknesses to that test. Sure. And we don't have a perfect test. Sadly. Um, no, I'm going to add to the next question you wrote down. Yeah. So if we're looking back and looking at the last huge major pandemic, I mean, you could look at SARS and MERS, but 1918 flu and your thoughts on the second potential surge of COVID-19. I have no idea. Yeah. You know, I really don't know. It's It's not keeping you up at night. No. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing keeps me up at night. I'm tired. (laughs) But um, no, I, I really have no idea. And I think... You may have seen, I can't remember where it was published, but the different graphs for each individual city of the 1918 pandemic, mm-hmm. they're all different. Yes, they are. Nobody mm-hmm. knows. Well, and even St. Paul, Minneapolis. Thing, right? Right. Right. And they're, they're so close to us and they're not alone. We're here. But <laughs> but I think it's, it's an interesting thing because it's totally unpredictable. That's an unsettling feeling, but I have no idea if we'll even have a second surge. If we're lucky and everybody tries very hard to you know, keep their distance and to be conscientious of both themselves and their fellow man or woman, then we sh- hopefully we can steer out of those rough waters. Mm. You should go to that graph thingy. The graph thingy. About I, the, the curve that Dr. Oh, Baker yeah. talked about. Well, you know, I think that it's interesting if you look, um, they talked about this on our Echo, uh, Dr. Baker did from Hennepin County Medical Examiner that, Office. Who's that? Uh, Dr. Baker. Which Baker? Andrew Baker. Andrew okay. Baker. Do you know Andrew Baker? No. I know a Dr. Baker at Hennepin County, though, and I'm a, I adore him. Dr. Jason Baker. Uh, he's an ID doctor there. So I was oh, wondering oh, if he no, spoke, if everybody had the luxury of listening to him speak for it. Okay, well, maybe we'll need to... No, Dr. Andrew Baker is the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, and so really oh, to kind of get his yeah. perspective from their Great. perspective. Yeah. But it was interesting when he showed the models, and he said that even now, 
uh, because we have had cases decreasing and yeah. deaths are decreasing mm-hmm. to a degree. But of course, we're a little early to tell did the did the demonstrations and stuff, are they going to affect that? Or, yeah. you know, is the weather affecting? There's all these things that people right. have surmised. Humidity, the hum- sun. Yeah. And nobody really knows, but right. we seem to be falling off of that a little bit. Do you, I mean, do, do you think that we're not going to, I mean, in looking at that, I mean, are we just not going to have that surge? I hope. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I, I'm not banking on that. That's yeah. for sure. Um, but I hope that, um, that, uh, the surge that we may have in the future is not a surge. I hope that it's just a little blip swell. Yeah. <laughs> it was just interesting. His I chart, don't know. They, you know, MDH had put out these model predictions in April and then re-put out new ones in May. And even like the four different ways they had panned it out, it just showed these upticks. And where we are keeps being these like little yeah. tiny bumps in the road and not anywhere near the, the surge. And it's just... At what point do we get to breathe going, okay, well, we got past it. You know when we can breathe, in my opinion? I think we can breathe when we know if neutralizing antibodies persist for a while. Yeah. Once we know if folks who are exposed develop neutralizing antibodies and the convalescent plasma stuff is coming out, but if we know that there's a period of immunity, there's been all this chat. I, I think it's chatter, actually, in the uh, in the literature about herd immunity, which is in my um mind still an assumption it's a fair assumption Mm -hmm. most viruses you develop herd immunity uh or at least not for some time back to the cows (laughs) (laughs) i got a farm theme going yeah yeah herd we're gonna rename this one the cow covid super special (laughs) farm themed covid talk but um i think um that will really be uh critical information that kind of is leaking out slowly. There was an article a couple days ago from clinical infectious diseases that I have, I have to admit I haven't even finished reading through yet, but I think we're getting there in terms of figuring out about neutralizing antibodies, or at least I did until you told me your story, Kurt, about a, a unique patient scenario we can't talk about right now where, you know, we can't assume everybody in that scenario had um, neutralizing antibodies. Yeah. So it's it's keeping us on our toes. Yeah, and we'll talk about that case someday. It's <laughs> super double top yeah. secret. But, you know, you 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 kind of move, you know, I'm kind of the research guy, Heather's an <laughs> IT person. Um, but, you know, the study came out just a few days ago, and they talked about, well, at what point can we stop social distancing? Yeah. And there was this talk that, well, if we had a if we had a vaccine that was yeah. 70% effective mm-hmm. and 60% of the population got it, that at that point, this, this wouldn't spread the same way. I mean, what's the real, I mean, how realistic is it to think that that'll happen in a year? I mean, we're talking billions of people. In my, I'm, I'm sorry to be such a pessimist because I'm not oh. inherently pessimistic, but I think that's very unlikely. I yeah. know that that's the push, but um, there was a, the there was a recent, um, preliminary trial published in the Lancet on an adenoviral based um, COVID vaccine. And they looked at antibody response and then neutralizing antibody response. And there was a massive difference between those two. The neutralizing antibody response was 20 to 30%, Ouch. much less. Oh. I don't, don't quote me on that. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it definitely wasn't more than 30%. No, I just wrote that down. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I signed I, your I'm name to it and I sent it. I'm skeptical about that. I think it's going to be a little while. 
That's I just remember when the first time you came on the COVID echo, you had we'll said, see. well, it's taken how many years to develop an HIV vaccine? And we haven't done that yet. Yeah. Hopefully it's not like that. Right. Um, it hasn't been that way so far. So, so we'll see. That's you know, helpful. You know, kind of in the same vein, again, I'm the research guy. Oh <clears throat> Heather's just the, he has the pretty face at the, at the table. In there. our non-video <laughs> blog here. <laughs> but, you know, if when we talk about medications, and you said this once previously in an echo that, you know, we've had a lot of viral things already that we have not come up with medications for to cure it. I mean, hep C would be yeah. an unusual one. You do a lot of HIV. I mean, really, what's the chance we're going to just suddenly stumble across a med that's just going to be an obvious game yeah. changer, right? I, I mean, this isn't designed to be an inherently pessimistic talk. <laughs> I think I, I have some tempered enthusiasm about that because of our past experience. We have acyclovir and we have gancyclovir that treat, you know, HSV and CMV. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think I was necessarily banking on... Um, uh, Magic bullet drug for COVID nineteen, but for even like acyclovir and valacyclovir, they don't really treat HSV like they treat the immediate outbreak, but they don't like get rid of it. Right, they shut down viral replication rate, so that's like what remdesivir is sort of doing. Right. Yep. And um, and so I'm really grateful that the remdesivir trials actually uh, that remdesivir seems to clinically have some effect mm-hmm. on outcomes, and I think that's as good as we could hope for right now. Yeah gonna be like someday somebody's like look at me i got covid but i happened to be on this random metronidazole it didn't do anything and i'm here everything i mean there's like you know it's crazy we're gonna have to probably just have a couple more questions i think i think we should really just kind of end with the the big one well (sighs) okay the who should i be nervous the world health organization (laughs) who came out you know two days ago saying there is no asymptomatic spread of this yeah. virus. And then, of course, retracted it or recanted it the next day. Yeah. But yet, if you read the actual thing, which Kurt didn't do, but I did. That's not It was true. not an official <laughs> statement. It was this, like, yeah. random interview. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, To be clear, I didn't read it because I was having trouble with my contacts. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong pair of glasses. Left the good ones at home. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you already heard my diatribe, unfortunately, but... You know, I was talking with my colleague, um, esteemed colleague, about the fact that asymptomatic, what does that mean? Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's be scientists about this. Asymptomatic means no symptoms. And just because we didn't know the symptoms doesn't mean they were asymptomatic. Right? So I think it's still, I don't really believe, I don't read the mainstream media stuff about asymptomatic viral spreading at all, because I don't think any of it's really hard science or carefully um anything i've seen at least looks carefully done and um we didn't know that loss of smell or taste disturbance was a one of the symptoms or gi symptoms right like we knew there were some gi symptoms but transaminitis and pancreatitis or it's not pancreatitis technically it's just elevated lipase but right so i think what does asymptomatic mean who knows Uh, who knows right and and then asymptomatic spreading well, that relies on a good history, right? Yeah. And as an ID physician, <laughs> that's we what focus you do. all our time on taking a very good history. And that's a real challenge, I think, when you're trying to see a sick patient and mm-hmm. whose oxygen is 40. And Yeah. So you're saying the mainstream 
media is not where to get your information because i mean i think tmz at this point facebook i've been having a lot of stomach aches i'm gonna maybe quit drinking the bleach then i mean is that what you're saying <laughs> because it does That's seem to be bugging news, me Kurt. Oh, i just bit on that so i think really the last thing we have to hit before we go uh, the pangolin i mean maligned yes right. i mean i you know and again what the pangolin. a weird animal well it i was just <laughs> so having this cool. discussion with my grandson just Who's the other day like five he's, he's six six now he's five, maybe six. So that just went on record. <laughs> and, and and to be clear, as it, as it appears, their their scales are thick enough that a lion, from what Jude tells me, cannot bite through. Isn't them. that terrifying? Yeah. And and yet we're still throwing the pangolin under the bus for this all. Do you I think mean, a bus would actually kill it? Knows? I I nobody. I don't know. I certainly don't know where what the intermediate host could be. That's just been thrown out there as one of the potentials. Mm. And despite the fact that 98% of the humans on the world did not know what a pangolin was. Right. <laughs> I had to Google it. <laughs> right. But they're kind of cute. They're and now wi- weird looking. And now Wildkratz has done like a huge episode on them. So all my kids know. Yeah. Oh, that's how Jude yeah. learned. Wow. Yeah, that's how Jude learned. Wow. Yeah. Wildkratz. So yeah, I think that kind of ties into us figuring out where this actually started because the Wuhan market got a bad rap, but we are pretty sure that that's not where it actually started. Mm. And that's as much as I can say. And Ooh. Yeah, Ooh. and then, well, I don't know. I mean, I just, we don't know. No conspiracy theories here. <laughs> so I feel like, uh, yeah, and then once we, once we, if we ever drill that down, it will be helpful then to kind of mm. figure out Pigs or pangolins have been thrown under the bus. All I know is, you know, if I'm sitting out on my porch and a pangolin walks by, I don't think my first thought's going to be, man, I want to eat that thing. <laughs> it's like, no. You no. know, back to the barn with the cows. And yeah. Let's eat that. Yeah. Eat that's, that. A, that's actually steeped in culture. And yep. it's an interesting thing. There's a New York Times bestseller that I don't know the name of the book, but it's about that. It's really? about Chinese culture and sort of Eastern medicine and. So, yeah. so it was more of a cultural thing. Yeah, I, I, I really don't even want to go on record saying anything about the pangolin because I don't know. <laughs> but it, it has medicinal property. The meat or the actual eating a pangolin has um, medicinal um, healing. It's felt to have medicinal benefit. Ah, interesting. And, interesting. In that culture. And, so you can replace I've your I've never seen one walk pangolin. by, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, if I see one rock walk by, I might duck and cover. Because <laughs> they're weird looking. Yeah. Like, and in Duluth, that'd be really weird. <laughs> that'd be really weird. I'd rather see a bear. <laughs> well, well, anyway. Um, we can't thank you enough for oh, yeah. popping in for this. Oh, yeah. super fun. Thanks for inviting me to do it. And uh, I think people will see her again on the uh, on the Echo. And we may be bringing her to the opioid slash addiction Echo uh, sometime, too, for the HIV hep C stuff. Because... She obviously knows way more than Dr. Bell does. Well, even like <laughs> infections like endocarditis. I mean, we could Ooh. we could abuse Amanda for a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd be thrilled to join uh, you guys. Okay, it's well, really a great group. <laughs> All right. So, well, thanks again, everybody, for listening. Has Battle Legs in the house today? Yeah, we'll let them finish up and play something. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. All right. Thank you. <laughs>